coffee drinkers because i swear y'all look like the happiest people in the world when you get your first cup of the day yeah we look like heroin patients we look it's of course we're happy we just we just shook off whatever the 12 hours of sleep withdrawal from caffeine is so we're just it's finally pulsing through our veins we're starting to come alive we're vibrating like chipmunks with chainsaws of course we look happy (laughs) don't be envious of that you know burn calories like a hummingbird we're not happy. We just don't have anywhere for it to go. I mean, I'm a big fat guy, so anything to like burn off calories, at the drop of a hat would be great. Get out! Is that's the problem? It's not just if it was just caffeine. Like I drink black coffee, right? So if you want to come to that dark side, go ahead. But the problem is you get sucked into that Starbucks funnel, and next thing you know, it's like it's coffee. So I'm out energetic. And you're like, yeah, but you drink. 3,100 calories worth of salted caramel frappa whip or whatever. <laughs> You're not. Yeah. Uh, so funny story. It's about a cake. My, <laughs> it really is. So I had a funny story about that with my grandmother. When me, my, when me and my grandmother used to work together at the uh, Star Market, which is the local East Coast, whatever the fuck, our, um, grocery store. She was like, hey, just go get me um, a Mary Lynch. I go, what is that? They go, they'll know. <laughs> over there, I walk over there. I walk over to the uh, the ice cream place that sold coffee, and I was like, "Oh yeah, um, I got that whatever I got." I was like, "Oh yeah, my grandmother wants a, a Mary Lynch," and literally it was just them pouring a cup of coffee, pouring a, a bunch of coffee in the cup, put the lid in the cup, handed yep. it to. Me. And that messed up that an actual just a cup of coffee needs its own special hidden menu name at a coffee shop. Isn't <laughs> so- that amazing? And, and, and it's just so funny because that's her name, and they just knew that like when she walked yeah. in there, they was just like black coffee. Don't even, don't even yep. trip, don't even wait for her to get in line. Just make the fucking coffee. So she goes to Dunkin' Donuts. We'll say this is about a decade ago, and she goes, "Can I have a black coffee?" And the person goes, "What's in it? I don't know how to make that." <laughs> <laughs> so she goes, "All right, I'll walk you through it." She goes, <laughs> "She goes respect." She goes, get the cup. She gets the cup. She goes, pour the coffee on it. She pours the coffee, put the lid in the cup, and hand it to me. <laughs> <laughs> now hand it to me. And, and she paid her money and walked away. Didn't say a fucking word. And it was one of my favorite moments ever. Like, my grandmother is like my mom. So, like, every almost every bit of my personality comes from her. Like, my stubbornness, my goofiness, my love of, like... Like, when we went to go see movies, it was... Killing, cussing, comedy, or cartoons. Like, nice. That was it. Like the first movie we saw together was Serial Mom. <laughs> wow. All right. So the- I like her. I like her. I like her. Uh, I like somebody who's. That's it's far more injurious to do what she did, right? Oh. 
like if you just if you just say something to somebody and let them know that they're dumb, they know exactly how dumb you think they are. Oh yeah. But if you low key plant that 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 time delayed thing that you just you walk them through the coffee making and then you just bail and that person realizes that you know that they didn't know what coffee was even though you're at a coffee shop but they didn't go on record as saying how dumb they thought you were so you're just left to wallow in your own (laughs) your own imagination about how bad you are and oh that's some dark magic right there bro i fucking i love it man like that was oh i love that woman so, but something else we can get right into. Before we do, welcome to the Old Man Wade Show. I am your host, the God of Stubborn, the Lord of Laughter, Old Man Wade. And that voice you hear is someone who's been on the show more than a few times. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, one of the reasons I actually want to make sure I get to Houston at some point so I can go see go see one of his comedy shows and throw back a couple of shots. Slade Ham, everybody. What's up, man? I like doing the show. It's, it's always a good conversation. It's always fucking fun, man. It, especially because there's a lot I learned from you. And something I'll get into later, but something else my grandmother taught me was travel. She was like, always make, she goes, there are people who haven't even left their city or their town. She goes, go out there, do stuff. You've been to a bunch of countries. We've talked about this before, but you actually just recently, I want to say a few months ago, came back from Europe. Uh We got back, I think, uh, May 29th. We had run through, It it was a fascinating trip because I've been to most places now that the United States military has a presence, um, just about all of them. And then new things happen in the world. So we had this tour scheduled into the Baltic region of Europe. We were going to go into Kosovo and, and that, that area. And then all of a sudden the Ukraine pops loose and they start looking at additional dates and the rest of that region finished. We did uh, Romania and Lithuania and Bulgaria. So we're all in that kind of region. Then they go, well, can you guys go do an extra week or so in Poland? Uh, we're going to say we got some new folks right on the Ukraine border. Uh, they don't know how long they're going to be there. Can you guys put on some shows? And that's just, that's where I, that's where my heart starts beating. That's where I get all excited. That's the reason I'm in that. I don't, you know, it's fun. I love comedy. Don't get me wrong. Playing for drunk Americans is wonderful. Yeah. But the, it's, you know, obviously the magic of stand up is the ability to change any, this environment from whatever it was to laughter and happiness for a moment. And that's for someone who's deployed to a location that is, and when I say bare bone, like bare bone tents, you know, you know, those party tents you go to when someone throws an outdoor wedding. Yeah. Like, like, you know, the big white ones. Yeah. So they're all at the carnivals. It's that with walls on them, except they shove bunk beds in them. And, and, you know, some big AC unit that just blows in there, but there's 20 guys staying in it. And it's just, you know, it's a tough deployment. So we got to go out and, uh, and they were just some of the most fantastic shows we'd had in a while. And for me, you know, we've been sort of hamstrung with international travel the last you know, handful of years. So it was really good to just get out and be in some other places for a change. And, you know, you come back and it just shines such a glaring light on this, this selfish myopic American view of just everything is so terrible. And you're like, no, it's only terrible here. Cause we don't shut up about it. Like it's other people just go, you know what? Yeah. Some stuff sucks, but there's also some cool stuff. And yeah. look at that for a minute. 
yeah, I've learned a lot of that these last this last year, be not being able to work. And I was like, fuck, I miss work. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can't I can't wait to go back. And there's a scene from Lucky Number Seven where the guy goes, everyone thinks their grass is green on on the other side. I keep my feet on both sides of the fence. This way, my grass is always green. And I was like, uh... I was like, I love that. <laughs> like, because it's and it's very true. Like, um, I have a lot to be thankful for. My wife just passed the NCLEX, so she's officially a nurse now. So that's fucking dope. Um, my dog, mom, our dog got into some shit, but she's still alive. I'm happy about that. Like, you know, the bill sucks, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like overall like we're happy we're healthy so there's things like that so and i'm pretty sure that on the international side of it you have these soldiers who are like like you said intense they're either cold as hell or hot as hell they just can't get up and go and do the things so getting to see comedy for what, like two hours maybe three that's fulfilling that's rewarding fulfilling for them but also rewarding for you well you're you're humans our ability to adjust our baseline is is remarkable to me right like the things that are you and i would say are intolerable to us right now in the context of this conversation things we wouldn't put up with if you changed the circumstances our tolerance would change drastically if we both fell out of a helicopter in the mountains and we're in the woods our level of comfort would adjust immediately. Suddenly you could sleep on the ground and in 40 degree temperatures with a fire and you would learn how to do the, it's, you, we adjust to our environments constantly. Um, and that's, that's sort of what I think happens out there. These guys go from wherever they were living to sudden deployment. You're staying in these tents, you're under now your porta potties and showering together and all of the horrible things that come with a deployment and being stuck in a group like that. And if you stay in that mindset too long, right? If you, it's like going to prison, I imagine in some instances where if you surrender to these are prison rules, it makes reintegration very difficult. And I think if you surrender to, well, everything sucks. I think it's, it's difficult to, to remember what the real world was like. So for us, going in as comics, we're sort of this injection of, hey, everybody, remember this, this is temporary. We're all coming back home to do more of this shit. And I'm just here to remind you that this shit still exists. And you shake hands and you laugh with these guys. And you it's it's hopefully in that day, you just you recharge the battery enough to get them to the next charging station. Do you have any particular, like, speaking of that, like, do you have any particular moments, and we may have talked about this before, or maybe I read it in your book, or I just don't, what's some, like, what's a moment that you will always cherish from going over there? Like, so, like any, like, personal interaction that you've had that's been, like, this is probably why, it's like, this is why I do this. So I, I so many. Um, the, I remember, so the one, and I, I, this may have been in the book, too, I can't recall, but I I just, it, it sticks with me because I just quit smoking. And this, so this would have been October of 2008 or so. And we were in Iraq. It was me, Sam Damaris. I, like you remember so many details. And we played this place called Sadr City. And it, it's a little compound in the heart of Baghdad. Uh, and at the time, the U.S. military was training the Iraqi police to take over some of the uh, the security work in that area. So we're doing this show for all these guys and it was a really wild night. And then afterwards you go hang out and we're sitting, I'm sitting with one of these, this young kid too. And just asking the basic questions, uh, like, what do you do? What's your job here? Blah, blah, blah. Cause they normally like talking about 
their stuff. And it's just a chance to tell somebody to, you know, what they do that, that it's new to, it's not the same everyday people. So as so what are you doing? He goes, ah, oh, man, I, uh, a man, the turret on the, uh, on the convoys. And I go, Oh, I go, that's, that's the, I go, do you like it? He goes, ah, he goes, I don't know. Cause it's my second day. And I go, Oh, okay. I go like, did you just get here? Or is it like a promotion? He goes, well, he just gets all somber and he goes, the, a sniper took out the dude who was in it before me. And he just taps out a box of Marlboro lights and he goes smoke. And I just fuck. Yeah, buddy. Uh, lit one up and it was, kind of that i've seen so many instances of that level of candor where it's not even kind of reflecting back to what i was saying a minute ago it's just like a level of surrender to yo this is this is my life right now this is where i'm at this is what happened it wasn't said with any level of panic or any and it's this 18 year old kid who had to be terrified it's just i think your mind adjust so i those are the those are the times where you, where you talk to people and you just it's a real legitimate connection i remember even without talking to people i remember on that same it was it that trip or was it i have to look uh whatever year it was either 2008 or 2010 um rise against put out an album and on that album was a song called hero of war and it's all about it's somber, man. It's this, it's this song about this kid going, being, you know, sold the spiel. Uh, do you want to see the world? Uh, we'll show you blah, blah, blah. And he joins up and he gets over there and he's in war. And this, this little Iraqi girl is waving a flag and they said, shoot whoever. And he shoots the girl with the, I mean, it's a, it's a dark song. And I'm listening to this album because it just came out and I've got it on my headphones and I'm on a C uh, C-130 or C-17? C-17 is the big one. Um, so we're on this big C-17 and it's like a, it's like an, like a jet, it's a bow, like a big Boeing 747 and the rows of seats are all there. And we're going into Iraq the same way all of the soldiers are like on that plane, except they're all geared up and they're, they're getting into their seats and we're there with our dumb backpacks and sweatshirts and, we all the plane takes off and I'm listening to this album and that song comes on. It's like track eight or something. It's deep into the album and it's playing and I'm looking around the inside of this plane and I'm watching li literally like women flipping through their phones, looking at pictures of their kids and just, it's like this, Oh my God, these people are going to that place and they're not coming back for like nine months. And I'm just sort of like, it's weird to share space and energy with that where you're like i'm not going on the same journey you are but we're sort of taking the same vehicle and that's that's scary to me like i i've never had to look it right in the face it's like oh yeah everybody you're going to war see you when you get back buddy it's a totally different thing when there's like a i can imagine what would be going through my head in a scenario like that because some of them don't know what the living conditions are like over there it's so many questions and what, what's it going to be like? What are we going to do? Am I coming home? When can I talk to my family? And this was like, Oh wait. So I think we were still using calling cards and shit. Jesus. So you just, it's, it's being confronted with that is what makes it so simple to decide to do some of those tours every year. And it's, you know, even if we're not going to the, it's, it's easy to say yes to Italy and Germany and England and all that fun stuff. It's a different one when you're like in Niger, Africa or Djibouti or Iraq or Afghanistan or 
but those are even Saudi though, but those are the places where, you know, it's like the worst you imagine it is as a performer and what the, what the conditions might be. You, you just take that and you go, well, I'm only there for a week or two, uh, multiply that by 20. And then that's who you're going to perform for. And you just, how do you say no? Right. So you bring up energy and that's one of the things I've noticed just from, Anybody who I think if you interact with a team or a group or even a duo, like you have to have the right energy going in. Otherwise, it doesn't fucking work. Like, you know what I mean? Let's like Dwayne Wade and LeBron James on a fictional character level, Sherlock Holmes and um, Watson. Mm -hmm. There are certain you have to have this energy with you. <laughs> so I know when you've gone, you've brought Sam Damaris, who may be one who's one of, if not your best friend. Um, and recently you've brought uh, up and coming comedian, uh, Trey, Trey Tutson, and you introduced him to the world. So how do you decide who has the right energy to go with you or even not to go with you? Who do, who do you know has the right kind of personality and professionalism to bring with you on these trips? Well, so there's, there's a lot of things to take into account. It's, um, um, and also if, um, pardon me for drinking, bo um, <laughs> why Oh, <not>? Hey man, <laughs> if you're going to box wine it, I should have, I should have gotten some whiskey to go with my coffee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to have a shot glass later out here somewhere. Um, so the, it's a couple of things you, you can zoom into a, to a micro level and look at everybody individually, which I think is important. You got to check some bare bone boxes as a comic, right? I need to know that you can throw a hot 30 minutes clean without missing a beat. Um, because I've been thrown total wild cards. We were in Norway when, when the, the base command was like, Oh, Hey, by the way, all the kids are going to be at the show. Cause we don't have anywhere to put them. Um, so is that cool? And what am I going to tell a, a Colonel? You know what I mean? It's a, yeah, whatever you want, sir. Um, bring them. So I need somebody who can adapt to that. The same thing happened in, uh, in Belgium where the show was accidentally built just from, you know, the top down as all ages. So we got to this auditorium that had 300, 400 people in it. And like 60% of them were under 12 years old. Oh. And that's, yeah. And that's so rare. I can, I can probably count on one hand, literally in 40 plus tours, the amount of times that's happened. But Imagine if all you have at your disposal are dick jokes, if that's all you, you know, and so it's, you have to have that skill. Um, and then you have to be, your, your personality can't be easily inflamed. You're, you're going to, you're going to encounter stuff on this trip that hasn't, that you aren't expecting airplane delays. Uh, I can't tell you how long we were stuck at the French London, uh, uh, with the, with the English channel, uh, we were stuck there over their bullshit. Uh, cause those two can't get along over fishing boats. And that cost me three hours. I having to sit there overnight in the cold while they search the vehicle and a bunch of, and if you're a grumbly son of a bitch, that's never going to fly. But on the macro, I'm just, I'm a nerdy kid who used to play all these final fantasy video games. And I used to, I'm used to to building a team with complementary skills, right? We gotta have a we gotta have a dude who does magic, and we gotta have a dude who heals, and we gotta have a dude who's you know a tank. And the that's sort of how I approach these tours, where I'm like, all right, I need someone who, if you look at this last tour, Chase DeRusso, I was like, this guy who's been on tour with Joe Coy, he's got amazing opening energy. He he go he works out in New York twelve times a week. So for me. I knew he was going to go out and he was just going to be that, that gun up front. I was never going to have to worry about the one spot. 
And then Trey with this young energy and, you know, I know he's hip and he's current and he's modern. He's going to, I know what he's bringing to the table. And then Paul, I need some veteran energy, Paul Odo, who uh, won the Boston comedy festival. And it's, he's got a different level of peaceful energy where he's just, he's not going to freak out. He's been doing this for 20 years. It's a, so you're all, you're trying to find those moving parts so that I don't have to singularly be the host, the closer, the entertaining person in the room when we're having the meeting with command and the, I don't want to have to be all those roles. I want people who fill these different boxes. So those big loud personalities like Sam and chase fill a box. They're going to, they're going to be that when I need them to be that. And then when it's time to be serious or it's time to close the show or the other thing, I know where my role is. And it's, it's just, you're building a team and that's in everything that you're doing. It's, it's all got to be complimentary. You know, it's funny because, like, as you're saying this, I really just picture you as like Nick Nick Fury sitting on the helicopter, <laughs> sitting on the helicopter, and you're like, "All right, I need to assemble the Avengers," and it's like, "All right, Sam Damaris, I need I need the Hulk." <laughs> like, you know, but what that's I mean? that literally that's what it's 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 Danny Ocean, it's 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 Nick Fury, it's the learning to. There, there's a certain point where you don't scale, right? Like I simply can't do all the things I want to do, especially as you get to larger projects. And I, I, I may understand all of the elements, but it, you can't feasibly, you can't make a film by yourself, right? You could, you could go, you could technically be the sound guy and the camera guy and you could do all of this stuff, but you have to stop and go, all right, am I, going to make a better thing by doing all of these things myself or am i going to make a better thing by enrolling people better than me at the things that i want to do and if that's the case you know it's the the danny ocean analogy it's a he can't crack the safe and get past security and turn off the cameras and be the distracted it's you just there's a reason that takes 11 people and that's how you that's how you rob casinos as opposed to running into a, 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 a gas station with your gun and leaving with thirty dollars. That's what one person versus eleven can do. So and you know what actually brings up a really good it, I love how this is one of the reasons I love doing these podcasts with you because everything flows into sections and it makes for easy segues. Cause you talk about making these decisions, because like I said, you are the Danny Ocean of the situation. But on a podcast, I want to say it was last month, you talked about being indecisive, which I found very weird because like just from like seeing the things that you do and like running 500, no, 600. No, are you at 700 yet? Um, what, episodes? Yeah. It's a oh, we're at uh, 1050. 10, it's just at the thousands. I'm sorry. I don't know what, what I'm yeah. doing right now. Um, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm in a bit of a daze. You guys are at 1,000. Actually, I want to make sure I get this right. 1038, I think, is uh, coming out this month. I think it's because I know you guys just did one with a, uh, you guys, it cracked me up because you guys got to like sliders in the middle of the episode. I'm like, damn, now I want to go make a fucking slider. <laughs> oh, they were so good too. So, so I can't wait to hear the dudes I want because I've been in my cooking bag, but that's another story. But like, so you talk about being indecisive and one of the reasons I love the new iteration of the Whiskey Brothers over the last couple of years is because it's still funny. It's still comedy. And while a lot of times, depending on the podcast, I hate guests. Like they just, just fucking worse because the crew doesn't know how to handle a guest. You guys handle guests perfectly. Like I'm not a big rock and roll guy, but I but listening to Sam's passion 
talking to the gentleman you guys had on before and getting to like the best and like creating these bands and which Sam eventually just made Pantera, which cracked me the fuck up. Um, <laughs> but like you are, you're the leader of, you're the leader of the Whiskey Brothers. Like you're the fielder, you're Cyclops. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but when you saying you're indecisive, I found that weird. So how do you make these decisions, but still be indecisive when you have so many projects going on that require you to go now? Like, you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's, I would, I would argue that there is a distinction between um, reflex and decision for starters. Um, they are, they're both actions. Um, but I, what I think I was referring to, and if, if, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, on one of the episodes of the Whiskey Brothers, we did a, a prompt about what our biggest weaknesses were yes. amongst the cast. Yes. And I believe I cited indecisiveness as, as my answer. And the truth, it's a, almost my entire life, I've, I've noticed, I noticed patterns. And one of the biggest patterns is that I am very, and I've even said it about myself and not realized that I was referring to the same thing. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm direction over destination, if that makes any sense at all. Um, not, I never go, I want to go specifically here. I go, I want to go that way. And then I leave a lot of empty space to adjust along the way. And what that does is it, it causes me to be very indecisive in, in terms of permanence. Uh, anytime there's something that has long-term repercussions, I become very indecisive. I don't want to make permanent decisions because uh, for a number of reasons, and this a lot of the stuff I'm trying to get to the bottom of about myself. But, you know, some of that is, I, I think of how I think of how this current version of myself is living out uh, that you know think decisions that an earlier version of myself, right, twenty something year old, thirty something year old me, made decisions that this dude still has to you know I got I got to live with the repercussions. Yep. So seeing that, knowing that, makes me very cautious of the things I'm doing for future me, because I don't know what he wants. And I don't want to just be so selfish as to jump into things right now that are going to prevent me from accomplishing. Th and this is all certainly a bullshit story that I've concocted to avoid bigger decisions in my life. But it's I noticed that I was that way about um, when I had my car, uh, this old car that I got rid of a couple of years ago, the air conditioning went out in it. Um, and in Texas, it's, it's un, unbelievable. You can't contemplate living here without air conditioning in your car. You would die. And it went out this one summer and I go, well, I'm not going to replace that because I'm going to get rid of the car. If I replace it, I'm committed to keeping the car, right? Yeah. I did that for nine fucking years. <laughs> what was it? The, what was it? The, it was, I think you guys said it was a, a purple Mazda. It was, uh, everybody said purple. It was blue. It was, uh, <laughs> it was blue. It was, it was the Ninja Turtle. Uh, every, every car has a name. And uh, so that was the Ninja Turtle. And it was, I was not going to keep this. And for nine years, I convinced myself it was, it was like, it was like the Princess Bride. It was like, it was like Wesley going to bed on the Dread Pirate Robert ship where just every day, good night, car, sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. That's like just every day. <laughs> 
so the it's but i was i was that way with that i i I've, even right now i my my bicycle got stolen um uh, about a month and a half ago and i ride two or three times a day first thing in the morning usually like right at dusk sometimes i take a midday ride it's how i go clear my head when i'm just you know let a problem marinate or a writing prompt you know, something it just yeah. i'll go do that when i come back i'm in a better place um so this isn't something that sat in my garage this is something i rode all the time and i i it got stolen off my porch uh it's my fault for leaving it there overnight but the all i gotta do is go buy a bike and for a month and a half I, I have been telling, I'm like, well, you, whatever bike you get, you gotta, it's gonna be your bike for a little, so don't get the wrong bike. And I don't, it's now almost a, an experiment to see how long I'm gonna go without a bike. This is something I care deeply about. I ride all the time and I'm not doing it because of the commitment I'd have to make it. So that's where the the end and then if you want to extrapolate that out over my dating life uh you can do what you want to with that <laughs> so the the indecisiveness in that regard is just a part of me remains terrified of where i'm going and not being as prepared as i could be for that and i'm just like all right so the less shit in my backpack the more space i have for what we find along the way don't load up with anything take nothing with you that's I think that's what is at the core of it. And then what makes me where, where I've learned to compensate is that if you don't prepare too far out into the future, then you have to get adept at this reflexology, right? If you're yeah. not prepared for the things that are coming at you, you have to be better at dealing with them, you know, at a at a closer proximity than you would have if you planned way out in advance. It's easy, hey, here's my five-year plan. I expect these problems to come rolling in and I'm more like, all right, just open the airlock door and kick me in the back and then I'll dodge the asteroids on the way out. Yeah. But I've gotten really good at it. Like that's a, it's a, it's an actual, I think, soft skill set that you can develop and it makes you, you know, I think it shows up even in the, in the interview setting or the live fire setting of a podcast. It's just, my whole active life is always on not high alert, but just constant awareness of the environment and the situation and the fact that it's never going to be the same two days in a row in any capacity. So you better get good at, at freestyling is all. I feel like that's life though. Like, you know what I mean? Like we it is. Like, like you just talked about it earlier, like, you know, just the things that just kind of get thrown at you and the things that may seem, uh, now I don't want to say more important because important. Well, yeah, important. Important is a is a um, it's up to the eye of the beholder. Like depending on who's looking at what's important, you may not be important to someone else. Danger, uh, negativity, et cetera, et cetera. It's really just about adjusting and adapting to things. And one of the things I loved about my job is I worked security at a hospital. And one of the things I loved about that job was a lot of self discovery. I learned who I was as a person just dealing with people who are sick who are hurt in realizing that I do have this compassion that people have told me I had. Cause it's like, I don't run into a situation and go, yo, we got to restrain that person. I walk into a situation. Like I understand what I look like. I'm a bigger guy. So people see me and they're like, you brought this guy in and I walk up hands up like, Hey, what's going on? I just want to talk. Being reactionary has in life has its advantages. And that this job has helped me in life. <clears throat> I'm not as afraid anymore to ask ask for interviews or ask questions or just be vulnerable in situations because 
as my wife always says, the worst someone can say is no. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Especially if it's somebody you don't really give a shit about. <laughs> like, why do you it's, get? It's a hundred, a hundred percent. The, that ability to adapt is I, I cite travel all the time. Or I cite, you know, travel as a, as a complete solution to a lot of our own ignorance uh, and how to, so, some of what I think are our problems as people are just that we're, we're constantly talking to each other from, from places that aren't adjacent to one another. So we're not sharing a vocabulary at all. And the things that some people think are crazy and could never happen or commonplace over in the other neighborhood and vice versa. And, and when you can't envision these other scenarios, it makes it very difficult for you to have conversations with people who live in these scenarios. And when you get out and you've been to parts of the world where, where the things we take for granted aren't commonplace, where rolling blackouts happen with regularity, where water is something you have to go get, where, you know, plumbing doesn't necessarily exist, where, where food is cooked over fires in a, in a kit, where all of these things that we're just with, with microwaves and gas ranges and plumbing and upstairs and elevators and showers and the, and all that's wonderful. And I would not change any of it. That's, that's America. And God damn it. Woohoo. I'm part of it. <laughs> um, but that's not the whole rest of the world. And I think when you, when you're confronted with that and you've lived some life like that and you, you, you sleep in some tents and you sleep on some cots and you, 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 some dirty, you, you get some dirt in your life. And when you come back and something like a pandemic slams into your car's front end and stops everything, it's no longer, I'm using that as one example. It could just be a, an, a, an odd conversation with someone at a coffee shop. But when these unexpected events occur, you've seen enough stuff that it doesn't feel as foreign. You're like, oh, no, there's there's lots of weird shit that happens. Yeah, This is just one of those weird things. But if you're just sheltered in this little gated community where everything is t-ball and lattes and, and whatever else, I don't mean to talk with disdain about that lifestyle. It's wonderful in the suburbs. But if that's all you know, the minute anything else gets introduced, your your equilibrium is thrown off and your ecosystem starts to crumble. And I just think we're you know, if you're going to spend time on this planet, having a little bit of, you know, ability to just recognize the stuff, the input coming in as this or that. And that's, that's what gives you the ability to be quick with the reflexes. That's what gives you the ability to go, okay, I've seen 20 things similar, not this, but I've seen a lot of similar shit. I got an idea of what to do. That's, yeah. that's, that's what you're after, I think. I don't, this is one of the reasons I don't get racism or just the, the idea of prejudice because why wouldn't I, like, why wouldn't I want to know more? Like just on something, oh. <laughs> even just on something as, something as base as food. I, uh -huh. I went to Hawaii, best vacation of my life. And I was ordering breakfast and I always get eggs with cheese. I don't like eggs. I think eggs are the worst things in the world. They're just, they're a placeholder for the things I like. There. And it's the weakest of the proteins. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I ordered this thing. It was like, it, it was rice, a beef patty, an egg, uh, gravy and something else. And I want to make it with cheese. 
guy was like, the waiter was like, you don't want this with cheese. He goes, it's going to just mess up the entire chemistry of everything going on. And he goes, if you don't like it, I'll take it back, won't charge you, and I'll get it with cheese. And I was like, eh, fuck it, whatever. Tried it and I loved it. Went to St. Thomas. Don't eat fish. I had fish out there because it's like, it's different than the fish I'm getting in in Boston. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, I don't, and it's like just the culture of people, like learning about why they do certain things and yeah, but what if what if what if you were convinced? What if you'd gone down to the Virgin Islands, convinced that the 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 fish in Boston was the best fish in the world, and you'd spend a lot of your time teaching your every day hammering home how good the fish in Boston was, and patting your buddies on the back about your Boston fish, and and it's oh, Boston fish. You can't Boston fish the best fucking fish. It was so much fucking the best fucking fish. These fucking people down in the fucking islands, they're fucking they're fucking fish. Fuck these island fish. I got Boston fish. Can I, can I, can I just say that maybe one of the best Boston accents I've ever heard of? <laughs> <laughs> and, and also for Terrible. the record, and also let, let me also let me say for the record, I can't wait to leave this city. <laughs> I've said, terrible I've said, accent. I've said, <laughs> have you been to Boston? <laughs> yeah. So, so, but here's the thing. If you and your dumb Boston fish got down to the Virgin islands and they were like, would you like to try some of our fish? You'd be like, fuck off with your fucking fish. Fuck you. So, so you wouldn't want to know because if you tried their fish and that fish was better than your fish, suddenly your whole worldview, you, Mr. Boston Fisherman has got to go home and go, I don't have the best, I don't have the fish I've lived my whole life thinking I have. How great is that though? No, it's terrible. If if your whole identity, (laughs) if your whole identity is hanging on that fish, that's, and if that's what so much of, I grew up in it. Like it's, it's the being, being convinced that where you're from is the best thing in the world. And anything that challenges that, you just don't want to hear because what if, you know what I mean? What if my, what if everything I've based every decision on in my life on, including probably in a racist case, some hateful, harmful decisions. Yeah. So what if all of that turns out false? I'm not confronting that shit, bro. You know, don't answer that door. But you know, what's funny is like Jerry Wayne is a great example of that. Like, You're you know- talking outliers though. That's true. But Those that's, are outliers. That's so not. Like, that's not the guy. That's not Johnny Average at the gas station uh, in the pickup truck with true. the Confederate flag on the back. That's true. But let me. So let me rephrase. It's not that I don't understand it. It's just the idea of it. Just kind of like, why halt something that you may that may become orgasmic because mm-hmm. of something that you like i don't know like i've always beliefs are beliefs are fragile fragile important things to people and what i mean the and the more you repeat them to yourself and it's if you look at the the loudest racists if you look at the the most volatile of our fringe right those people aren't low-key they don't sit back and just seethe on the inside they repeat this story so many times that you can't possibly get out from under it. It's why I, I always, it's, there's a, there's a big, uh, I'm talking about it on the next episode of the experiment, but the, my absence from social media has been driven a lot by 
some of the identity that I see formed just by people taking what what seem like innocent stances online. But yeah. when you put something into print and you put something into photographic, I want to say evidence, but by by adding a frame to your photo, there's so much declaration that you can't go back and delete. So it's it's kind of like being pot committed where you're like, well, I've said this so loudly and so many times that if I if I don't say it again, if I say the opposite, people are going to think I'm I'm not consistent. Um, and, and no one looks at that as growth. They just go, I'm going to get kicked out of the community because you're part of something when you feel a, when you join a team like that. So there's a lot of delicate psychology at play there. Um, so there's a few things. Well, there's two things in particular. And you brought up again another segue. Uh, there's two things I've learned. One, the tagline for my show has always been, "I'm happy in my hypocrisy." I, <laughs> I know who I am. Like there are things that 1990s Mark uh, loved that he doesn't love anymore. I haven't used the F word for the homosexual community in about a decade. Mm-hmm. It's just not something that I use anymore. It's like it's it's a harmful and hateful word. I don't use it. If you go back on my Twitter, I'm pretty sure I said it. I'm not that person anymore. We've had this com- we had this conversation on the last podcast we did. Um, secondly, when it comes to social media, I'm I hate Facebook. <laughs> it is one of the most deplorable places in the world, and people find it funny that I'm more comfortable on Instagram and Twitter. I go, oh, I block people like I, I block people like Hakeem Olajuwon in this bitch. I was like, <laughs> words people if you're just gonna add anything negative to my life if if it if it affects my peace i don't want any part of it i have no problem doing it anymore Mm -hmm. a buddy of mine wants to do an episode and i said yeah i'll introduce the episode i'll introduce the character cast who's gonna be on there and then i'm taking off because the conversations y'all want to have while it is an important one it's not gonna help me in my peace so therefore, I cannot have this conversation. And we were, he was telling me about what he wants to do. And I was just like, yo, I don't care. <laughs> it's like, I just don't care about any of this. I was like, I, and I understood where he was coming from and I agreed with him, but I was like, I'm not going to have this conversation specifically because I'm going to ruin some friendships. I'm going to ruin some connections. And I'm also going to get angry. Well, I, I just frequently <laughs> ask myself with the, what the best case scenario is I had to, I would, I would wean myself off. There were days where I would log on and I'd see some posts and I'd go to respond and I would make myself type the whole response and then highlight it all and delete it. And I do do that every fucking day. It's insanely (laughs) therapeutic because you get the same sensation of having written it without any of that that longevity like it there's nothing in there's no injury to it so i did that for a stretch and then i realized like i don't even care that much so it's it's a you know you can curate for me i realized i can curate my feed and i can get instagram and twitter pretty much down to only scientific minds and good thinkers and, and philosophers and comedians and people i care about but then that's a daily maintenance. And then I've got to go block mm. these people. And then I've got to go, and I go, what do I really gain? And now it's work. It's, it's beyond work. It's, 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 it's tedious. So what am I getting in exchange for all that work? And it's, it's just the exchange of a couple of ideas, right? Like the net, what I actually pull out of that is maybe two or three real things a week 
for all of the noise that I have to sift through to get there. And I go, is there another way for me to get that? It's what, 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 what was I getting? I was getting the occasional um, movie or TV or entertainment uh, suggestion that I, I didn't know about um, when, when Mark Hurtado turned me on to RRR, you know, some things like there've been oh, some, I can't. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the, the, but little things like that, where I realized I could, there was a surrogate for it. I would just start a different pipeline of conversation. I would have group text messages with certain people and more actual analog on the phone conversation with other people. And I've weirdly replaced all of the things informationally and entertainment wise and everything else that I was getting from social. So, you know, I don't know that it's permanent, but it's for right now. It's it feels very liberating to not be stimulated by the exact same things that are prodding the the rest of the world, it seems. You know, um, and I just want to just so I can say this, like social media literally has become mental slavery because mm -hmm. like you get like unless you're getting something out of it, like all you're doing is working for free. Like all like Facebook and Meta, whatever the fuck it's called now, like you're paying them for your work. I kind of like, I kind of pop in for me now. It's been like, I pop in, I have some fun. I hop out. If I wasn't like my writing numbers are going to be what they are for my, for the website that I write for, regardless of if I post it on social media. Now on the flip side of that, I've met a lot of really great people on social media. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where it's a gift and a curse when it comes to that. Um, but that, but then that becomes not, not to interject. It's a, if, you just look at everything as the machine is, as it's working, then that really is the only way to do the things you're trying to do. If you look at it as a need that needs to be fulfilled, which is this need for networking and meeting people, it's the, the look for analog versions of those things, right? Where can you network? It's a, uh, my, one of my dear friends, Adam Taylor, a fantastic director uh, and helps produce uh, a number of video projects that uh, I'm working on. He, um, because of the, the, the cesspool of social and trying to do things in that capacity, turn around, he's, he's putting on a filmmaker's steak night once a month and 40 and 50 filmmakers show up from Houston, um, from everybody from the, the lowest PA to directors and producers and, you know, just cinematographers who are made in their literally sitting down and having steak and pinballing around in these groups. And it's, you know, four hours of drinks and hanging. And it's a, that to me is so that that's more effective than a month's worth of Facebooking. I agree. Done properly. Thousands. I agree a thousand percent. I it's, and it's my co-host and one of my, one of my closest friends in the world. He always says, he goes, I hate talking on the phone. I'd rather get together and have a conversation in person. He hates text messaging. Me and my wife, we used to oh, we used to go at it via text messages. And then one day we decided, never again. If we want to have a discussion, we're going to have it in person. And so for me, it's, a, it's something that I've learned a lot this year about I may take something the wrong way because it's in text, but the initial feeling behind it isn't what was put off because of that. Now, if the same thing was said in person, I'm not mm -hmm. even having the same kind of visceral, angry feeling that I've had it because I'm looking at a person, I'm feeling their energy with all that's going on. So it's this, again, here comes the curse with social media is because 
you only have an X amount of characters to have these conversations. You only have an X amount of time to do this. As opposed to if you're sitting next to somebody, you know what? Perfect example. There was an episode of Atlanta where two guys were having a conversation and they had different views on something. And then it was like, oh, I agree. Oh, yeah, I get that too. And the host was pissed off. He goes, I want you guys to argue. He goes, <laughs> but what? We agree. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So that's the curse with social media. Um, and like that idea of just like, you know, just like a steak night with like, or it just in general, it's just having a general like commune. Mm-hmm. Like me and like, I have a, a really core group of, uh, it's three couples. It's my wife, uh, my co-host wife and one of our, um, one of our friends. And it's almost like a recharge for us. And we just talk about the world. Um, last week, they argued about uh, stuff regarding um, uh, medical, the medical uh, insurance and stuff like that in America and the, the terminology and stuff. But at the end of it, they were everyone was fine. There was no anger towards that. Hmm. One day, I was so fucking high, I didn't speak for two hours. <laughs> I just, and no one bugged me about it. It was like, you cool? I was like, yeah. But like, no one really cared because everybody was in a safe space. And that's, oh my God, this is one of the things I love about, and one of the things I love about interacting with people, and not necessarily in person, like the conversation we're having now, we can see each other. Like, you know what I mean? So it's different. Uh, but let's move on, because this is, a, <laughs> we can talk about this shit all day. Let's talk about the stuff you're doing. You mm-hmm. said you have a science, like you have, so you have, as of now, you have was it? It's the uh, you have the Whiskey Brothers, obviously, in the thousands of episodes, I, I, which is funny because I think I don't know if you guys actually still count the episodes because I feel like it's just like welcome to the Whiskey Brothers episode, and I remember those one episode. You're like, how do you say like ten thirty something, or you just like whatever. It, it is what it is. Um, there's is this thing on which I love. The uh, it's because it's completely different from everything. It's it's a comedian game show, and as you described it, as um, what's that line or uh, whose line is it anyway? Wh- whose line is it anyway? Which is fucking great, but there's actually winners and losers and uh, people who come back to de- to like quote unquote defend their title if you want to call it that. Um, but you also have you mentioned earlier, I think it's the Slate Ham Project, the Slate Ham Experiment, Slate Ham yes. Experiment, which I haven't watched yet, and I didn't even know it, ex- it existed until like a few weeks ago. And I'm like, you and I was on, yeah, and I was on YouTube, and I was like, the fuck is this? <laughs> very a very soft launch. Um, so. I host uh, I host a number of uh, broadcast projects. I guess it would be the way to put it. Um, the Whiskey Brothers has been running since February of 2011. So we were in the podcasting world when no one knew what podcasting was, including half of the people on this podcast. It was a <laughs> no one knew. We were just making it up. Uh, and then along the way. Um, things changed and we went to video and we we added some shows as this thing on is a it's a great way for I wanted to showcase some local Houston talent and also give people an opportunity to write for something that wasn't just stand up it's a uh, our brains you know the more we're writing uh comedy the the more the more soft they stay the more you know they're 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 open to ideas and jamming things together and if you don't work that muscle out it, it disappears. So I thought what a great opportunity to, and also to force comics, not force them, but put them into a table together where they wouldn't work with this person before and just see what chemistry happens. And I trust myself to host that. So that show was fantastic. And then because just as the years go by, things change, um, that show is seasonal. Uh, the whiskey, 
Geeky Brothers is doing twice a month now instead of twice a week. Uh, but we're doing hour-long episodes, and that's just cast changes and you know scheduling. But I I needed ultimately an outlet for myself. Uh, so much of what I've done in the past has been some sort of group endeavor, and I forget that I'm a I'm not a bad talk show host. It's a, I, I know how to take a thought and I know how to, to stay on it. And I know how to take side roads and come back home. And I know how to close it all out and put a bow on it or not and say goodnight and fit all of that with inside of a clock. And that's when you have that skill and you have the skill of stand up and you recognize that I can go hit these open mics every night, which is fine. And I do a bunch of them and that's a great place to work out material, but I don't always want to be the the 23 year veteran in the room full of three or four year comics because that just you don't get work done it's you do your set and then you spend the rest of the night talking to people about oh stick with it kid and it's your i don't want to critique your material right now it's i can only help you with the things that your material is going to change and you know don't look at your shoes and move the mic stand and suddenly i've what did i even come here for and it's those are different purposes so i took this as an opportunity to there's a microphone, there's a light. Um, let me just go. Let me just, the genre has been created by, you know, people like Bill Burr and others who, who are doing cohesive, coherent conversations about certain things. So I, I launched the experiment and I'm leaving it uh, as the experiment in an effort to, I don't know what it's going to become. Uh, if you listen to the first 10 episodes or so, it probably shifts and meanders a little bit as I find my footing. And then there's a great interview with my friend, Paul Odo, who we mentioned earlier, um, and comedian and artist. And so I'm just trying some different things out and it will continue to, uh, it's, I look at it like a sandbox. I, I think the name, the Slade Ham experiment fits. Uh, you can find the old episodes of eyes on the ground back there where I do some interviews with really good artists like Jason Knight, uh, who was on forged in fire and Ali Sadiq, who's a wonderful comedian. And oh my God. Like it's, that's a good conversation with Ali, too. I need to hear that, because Ali Sadiq, I, again, I got put on from you guys from the This Is Weird uh, live episode you did, and I've been <laughs> on ever since. And, like, Ali Sadiq is – and then I saw him on um, This Can't Be Happening mm -hmm. and watching him just – like He's powerful. He's, a, he's one of the most yeah. incredible storytellers our generation has. I feel like he's – underrated even though he's finally getting his flowers from comedy central and some other stuff but he's just a he's a good dude and he's self-motivated and he's he's always if i if i respect one thing above all things uh in that we're similar hold on that, hold on one second so i had to so i had to pause it um I want to apologize to the audience. I'm trying some new stuff, so the um I can't go back and listen to it like I normally would. And we both kind of forgot what we were doing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get into something that I'm really proud of, and not for myself, but I'm, I love the fact that this is a project you wanted to get into, and you want to make it happen. Andy Huggins. Special. Oh, that's my baby right now. I know. So we're Andy all over, burying the lead. We... uh. Andy Huggins, uh, I, so I've directed a couple of comedy specials. I have produced, so I know my way around a comedy special. And my dear friend, Andy Huggins, if you don't know the name Andy Huggins, you should. Uh, go to your Google. But also, uh, if you watch America's Got Talent, I think uh, three years ago, that's, time is such a weird thing. At the I know moment. Howie Mandel, like, praised uh, him. 
so Andy Andy did stand up. He's a seventy two. He's a septuagenarian stand up comedian. He's seventy two years old. He's been doing stand up comedy for forty five years. He was uh, dear friends with Bill Hicks. He was part of the original Texas Outlaw Comedians uh, back with Jimmy Pineapple and Ron Shock and just some legendary names. If you are a comedy historian, um, he's he's part of our royalty. And he posed a question online back in January or maybe even before the end of the year. And he goes, uh, he goes, what would I need to do to, to tape my show? And it's an, it's an innocent enough question. Uh, most people would go, well, get a couple of cheap cameras, set them up, uh, find somebody to edit it, but it's really, you know, it's not a hard, or just set your cell phone up. There's a hundred different ways to tell an old man to tape his set, but I was, I'm teaching myself some stuff, right? I'm I'm in the process of learning a new skill set uh, of in filmmaking and trying to figure out how to how to make some of the other things in my head real. So over the last two years, I've kind of been giving myself a crash course in in editing and 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 cinematography and and cameras and film all these things that I think I needed to learn and and sound and color and editing and um, learning programs like Premiere and the I just wanted to do all of that. So I've slowly been adding all of that to my repertoire. And then when Jerry Wayne Longmire, uh, famous TikToker now, I can't even <laughs> say comedian first. I got a TikToker. He's, uh, he just crossed like the 320 something thousand follower mark. It's insane what he's, so he's got this crazy TikTok following. He was taping a special last July and I looked at what he was doing and I was like, well, here's what I would do different. And he goes, do you want to help? And I, because it's me, I go, yeah, but I'm taking over. <laughs> and it just, <laughs> it turned into, I'm ecstatic about how it turned out. You can go online and search Jerry Wayne Longmire's The Reckon Yard, R-E-C-K-O-N. Uh, I'll make sure I, um, I um, add that. Yeah, post, post the link. The, the, I didn't, we shot on Blackmagic 6Ks, which are good cameras, but they're not cinema quality at all so we were kind of limited in the shots that we had and I only had three angles to work with but it it came out wonderfully um so when andy posed this question i went well i'd like to take one of these beginning to end i produced the whiskey brothers one but i didn't direct it i i finished jerry's but i didn't have it from the jump let me do this from inception on so we launched a Kickstarter campaign and I relied heavily on the fact that he is an older guy and it's he even dropped a line in there in the video where he's going, let's be honest, folks, uh, this isn't going to last much longer. Can we just <laughs> help an old man out on his way out the door? And you just, it was, it was so fun and funny. And I tapped uh, the old owner of the comedy workshop, which is the legendary venue down here who's still around and uh, T. Sean Shannon from uh, an old SNL writer who was one of the old workshop guys. And Jimmy... guy. Damn it, Wade! <laughs> yes, yes, the bear, you know the bears. Uh, he's a famed SNL sketch writer. And then uh, Jimmy Pineapple, who was, you know, right there in the, it was him and Hicks and Huggins the whole time. So I got to interview these guys and have them talk about that era. And we used that to launch the Kickstarter campaign and we raised a significant amount of money. And then we rented out this beautiful theater here in Houston uh, where Tig Notaro shot a special in it. Uh, her special that's on Netflix right now, I think was the last comedy special shot there. And then Chingo Bling did his Netflix special there. So the venue is prime for this. And we, 
we built a beautiful set and the the crowd we sold out the room and i'm not kidding you i have and we and it's all shot on incredible uh cameras and lenses i mean it's it's all uh, incredible quality but more than anything i don't think i've ever seen something it's like going to a ballpark and and the and the pitcher throwing a, a no hitter and you just you're like that doesn't happen what are the odds that i was here for this and i just finished the first rough assembly of the special and andy watched it last night for the first time uh so that's where we are in the process and i've been mucking with this thing for about a straight week um because I took the week we came back in and I just didn't touch it after we taped just dumped the footage down and it's I needed some headspace and now I'm so I spent the last week in it and I'm so happy with where we are and I sent it off to Andy last night he had come back in from some gigs in Arkansas and I go all right man uh I want you to watch it and I know that how long it is you know it's not it's not a full hour we have we just so I but I sent it to him and he goes all right I'm gonna make a sandwich and I'm gonna watch it and I'm gonna call you back <laughs> and you know for me as the director who's I, I this has been my project the whole time are you pacing in, in the studio back and forth uh, it's, and it's, oh, <laughs> it's it's insane like you're there i mean there's a lot of trust i know andy is we're one we're friends uh two i've been very clear from the beginning that the most important thing to me is how he appears in this i want it to to display the best version of andy that that can be seen and i know he knows i was going to be uh delicate with that nevertheless when you he hadn't seen a piece of footage all he knew was that he showed up that night he did everything i asked him to do beforehand he went on stage and did his job and when i say nailed it it's it's as borderline flawless as a stand-up comedy set it is a clinic if you were a stand-up comedian in how to write and perform uh how to write jokes and and put a set together he holds court it is like watching i told him today i go it's like watching the conductor of an orchestra who doesn't isn't even aware they're playing instruments like it's there's so many it's the first time i've ever edited anything that i've had to shorten applause breaks to make it believable Wow. like that's the that's the only way i know how to put it and it's truth and he called me uh he called it was about an hour and a half after i sent it to him and he calls me and i just go god damn it andy and he goes i fucking love it and i just <laughs> went that's because ah! he and he, go, he paid the best compliment he could he goes this accurately shows people what i do and that's the and that that's that's what we want that's all i wanted from the beginning was to sh and it's the the you'll see the glimmer in his eye man when you when a 72 year old man drops a haymaker in a room full of 400 however many hundred people and it just hits and you hear the laugh start to roll and the the very opening not the opening line but the second line as he walks to the stage and he he does his opening line and then he sets his cane up against the table and he you know it's this old man finding the bar stool and setting the microphone aside and you're, you're sort of watching this this thing happen and i intentionally left some of the 
the awkwardness of it in there as he sits down and he looks at the crowd and he goes, you know, the hard part of stand-up comedy used to be comedy. And it just takes the crowd a minute, just like that. It's that pause. And it turns into this rippling roll of, and next thing it was, it was at that moment where I just re I was like, we have this in the bag. It's I, it was and it's 30 seconds in you just go, he, it's a smoke show. It's it's, and I've seen some stand-up specials recently that are great, but I, this is fundamentally remove even my directorial or the, the cinematography or the shooting of it, just listen to the audio. And it's fundamentally one of the best sets I think I've ever seen in stand-up comedy. He just doesn't lose you. And I've seen it now. This is me having edited. It. I've probably seen this thing 50 times. And I still beginning to end it and look up and go, damn, that was already, it's over. Okay. Over the years, I've learned to appreciate the editors and the engineers when it comes to just TV. Like one of the things that me and my wife detest is watching an action film and having to turn the volume up and then turn the volume down. And there's an engineer, uh, Parks Valley, who said, oh, the reason for that is because the engineers are lazy. <laughs> because yeah. it's like they, they can't adjust and it pisses me off but hearing that someone's like I'm adjusting this because you can easily just throw it all out there and it's a day and, it, and it's fine but this is something you're passionate about um, again my, my co-host my friend Hobby he he gets pissed off at me because I had a not a shitty microphone but I needed a he said I needed a better microphone to complement the show and I can't take compliments I like, oh, thank you, whatever, go fuck yourself. But like, I, but he was just like, no, you need to do. So now I'm learning how to edit episodes. I'm learning how to do all this other stuff. And it's, it's a rewarding thing when you can just look at that and go, I did this. It's like you mm -hmm. take pride in your work in things of that nature. Um, well, it's, it's like you said, you can, you can throw something out there. There's, there's much easier, much cheaper ways to do what we did. But then there's also the, you get you you can only get so much out of something like that it's a you get a cool little youtube video and it's it's still part of your body of work and i i don't want to discourage anyone from making something that way because you're still making something but if your goal is to do something of this magnitude which is how i view it it's literally the first fully recorded set of a comedian who's been doing this 45 years someone of that age, someone who's never looked back from their dream, but has also never really had the Tonight Show or any of these things that you would want uh, having done comedy that long. Um, so for me, I'm sort of the shepherd of this dude's legacy in that capacity. So yeah. you, can't, you can't do that small. And then if you're going to do that with the level of you know, uh, reverence that it deserves, then you should swing for the fences all the way. Cool, let's not just do it well. Let's do it well and right in a way that we might be able to land this somewhere like Netflix or HBO or Showtime, which is a very feasible outlet for what we've yeah. now created. And that's the, you know, it's, it's the rewards are, you know, consistent with what you put into it. And this was just one of those things where it was, you go all in. There's just no doing this small. I'm debating whether to have one more serious topic or do we get right into the fun shit. 
<laughs> it's uh, you know what, man? Whatever you want to do, it's uh, I'm good. You tell so, me. Well, this this, is, this may be a quicker topic, but how do you deal with the multiple changes that have happened with the Whiskey Brothers? Because it let's it at first it was you, John Wesling, Sam Damaris, Rob Mungo. Mm-hmm. Um, John Wesling got busy, and it was the three of y'all, and you brought in uh, Diane Gallagher or Trey Tutson, Kiki Maroon. Ashton Womack, Ashton Big Womack. Ed. Like, yeah. you know, and like all these people. So how do you how do you adjust to the change? Because it's it's one thing when you're just going on a European tour and like, okay, I've worked with these guys for a month, and you know like how you know all the ingredients that go into the sauce. But now you have to record these with these guys. Now it's once a month, but it's two um, two times a month. Too. Episodes come out two times a month. But like you know what I mean, but that's still more than what you would normally have to do. So how do you adjust to the ever-growing changes that goes into all that? It's you I like to stay in back in the back in the spirit of the the reflex uh conversation we were having earlier and how I'm not willing to look too far out into the future. Um I like to keep my my big goals in the in the three year mark and not go too far past that. And then on a smaller level, I sort of just try to stay ahead of the avalanche. It's I always assume that this change is coming. That's the you've been ho- when you've hosted a podcast for eleven years, and I have a stack. I'm looking at my one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight shot glasses of former official members just in the time that I've hosted the podcast. Not yeah. to mention the three of us that are still here. So I just accept that that avalanche is coming. And if I'm constantly just a little bit ahead, when cast members leave like Dale Cheeseman or Trey Tutson or whoever else, it's a, I'm, I'm just already there. Okay. Well, I've, I've mentally entertained three or four other people sitting in that seat. It's, I'm not caught off guard when you step out and it's maybe you won't step out. And I have just entertained the thought for, but I'm, I'm always running simulations of what if, what if, what if, and not, not for, you know, uh, oh, I'm afraid he's going to leave. It's just their literal thought ex- experiments of, I think I, I, I have thoughts for what, what if Sam and Jerry both left tomorrow, what would the pivot be or what would the plan be? Or would there be one? Or so my, I, it's, it's, I probably burn more mental energy than I should, but I'm always running those kind of what if scenarios so that when something happens, I've just somewhere in there. Okay. I've entertained an option or two. Let's, let's see what's in the bag because you can't do something like this with any sort of rigidity. You can't be like, this is the cast and this is how the cast is going to be. And if any one of those components leaves, we're all shattered. It's you got to stop. It's you got to be way more bendable than that to be part of something this dynamic. Yeah. And one thing I do love, and this is, I think, something that a lot of other groups and shows do that you have not. Nobody on your show has ever trash talked someone who's left for whatever reason. No. And I love that about it because, um, one of the two most recent, three most recent leaves, you had Kiki, then Trey, then Rob. At no point in time have you trashed any of them. Hmm. Um, when, when John Wesling left, you didn't trash him either. It was just kind of like, hey, they're going on to do bigger and better things. And it's, 
when people like I've I know a couple of comedians and they talk about how cutthroat and toxic and negative it can be and how it's easy to talk about someone to make your life better and make mm-hmm. your jokes funnier but you've never done that I don't believe it there's two ways to I don't, I don't, I use, I've told this I've used this metaphor before um I don't know if I've done it on this show but there's there's an old story um about this this king who was done with his kingdom and wanted to give it away to someone blah 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 and he he goes he draws a line on the floor of the courtroom and he goes anybody who can make this line shorter can have my kingdom and people come from all over and some people one guy puts a rug over half of it he look it's shorter and he's like get the fuck out of my my, my courtroom and <laughs> another guy scribbles over half of it you know and some guy paints so they're all trying to break this line up in some capacity or whatever and then this one guy comes walking in he draws a longer line next to it and he goes how's that line look now and he goes shorter he goes here's my kingdom and it's the the all the story paints is that there's there's a hundred ways to to make to to make something look worse than it is and you can do the damage yourself you can or as bad as it is really you can do that damage yourself you can be the one to point out look what this guy did look how bad he is all this what about ism that happens but all that does is eliminate some of your competition for a moment you're still right here it, it, it that doesn't make you funnier me trashing people who have left and in many instances it would be pointless i'm still very good friends with all of them uh but in any capacity trashing someone who left just to make the show look better in their absence is like a it's just going to be ineffective to the people who don't know that person it doesn't matter to the people who do know that person you're now making them question how they their judgment of that person and none of that makes the show any more listenable it's it's very weird to think that that would have any place on a show so every time we've lost a member we've just kind of pivoted and it's always been with the intent of okay what can we make with these ingredients now what's the best thing we can do because you know me trying to tell you why the stuff we did before was bad because this person sucks like it's a it's it's so contradictory how can i tell you how horrible this person is if i spent five years of my life making shit with this person like it's a it just doesn't serve any purpose so i godspeed to all of them and you know whoever's sitting at the table with me we're gonna make we're gonna make funny conversation i think yeah and it's i love it because it's it's there's a lot that goes into it and i'm and i and it was funny because i was talking to my wife and i said i loved how instead of being jealous of someone's success, you were happy. You brought up the story about how you were working with Ali Wong mm-hmm. and how like happy and proud that of her you were. And you were saying like, she was all, every time you worked with her, she was just, she was like, not just she, like she was learning the ropes, but she was also a really good person. Yes. Well, there's, there's something to the humility of when you see, and it's now having done comedy as long as I've done it, it's a, I can think back to shows with Ali's a great example. Tom Segura is another people that I worked with at points in their career when, you know, they were kind of where I am now, which is, you know, in some instances successful and happy and doing all the stuff you want to do, but also 
right on the cusp of making some of the great things you want to happen happen and having them right so no seeing them in that sort of airlock between good and great if that makes any sense and seeing how somebody like Allie handled it with not just poise but also like true love for the game hey it doesn't matter what's around the corner right now we're in a half full room in san antonio and it's us and we're gonna make a great show happen yeah. and you just that's good energy in a green room so when i see people like that or my friend mo Ammer, who's uh he's in the new black adam movie and he's been torn with oh Dave shit Chappelle he is for, oh yeah he's in the trailer um he's in Holy the uh shit. Matter of fact, the uh, is it the eighteen wheeler? I've only seen the trailer once, but uh, it's in the desert, and he's uh, he's dressed in I guess it's his mid Middle Eastern garb. Oh shit, he's looking out the that's Mo. Uh, so that's when I dope. when I see things like that happen to friends of mine or people like uh, another good one is Matthew Broussard, who I adore and a, a great comedian and lots of Comedy Central love and plenty of accolades. Uh, he doesn't need me to say good things about him, but I knew him when he first came into this open mic I was running and it was 10, 12 years ago. And he was like, I'm going to be a correspondent on the daily show. And you know, you just giggle because everybody's going to be something in common. Everybody washes out and you just kind of write that off. And then 12 years later, you look up and he's been on all these shows. Is Matthew Bouchard the really pretty one? Yes, he's he's absolutely <laughs> stunning. He looks like a Ken doll. He's he describes himself as every '80s villain uh, in the movie. It's the he's, but he's was, he's genuinely uh, just a fantastic dude, and I've, I've he's a good friend, and it's good to see. For me, when I see things like that happen, I can you can sit back and see and go, I can't believe these people are getting what this stuff should be mine, or you just go, that's. That's what they went after, and they got it. And you just got to get back in your lane and go get your shit. That's, I agree. That wasn't your stuff. They got. There's not a limited amount of stuff. 